And welcome back to another episode of Animation Broadcast and Cinema. My name is Bo Allen. My name is Jacob Rodier. And we are going to talk to you about Sam Raimi today to start off. Uh, Multiverse of Madness has finally come out. This was a really, really anticipated Marvel movie. People have been talking about this one for a while and all the possibilities it could open up and all the potential it really has. And people got even more excited when Sam Raimi was announced because obviously of his history with Spider-Man and, you know, ooh, the, the whispers of Tobey Maguire, you know, he they could bring him in through Multiverse of Madness was one thought because Multiverse of Madness was slated to come out before No Way Home. And... People just got really excited about all the potentials and the crossovers it could create, like with the Fox universes and stuff. Like that might be one way to bring stuff in. And uh, I think in the midst of all of that, people were not expecting it to be, or I, I would say the the wider mainstream was not expecting it to feel like a Sam Raimi movie. And I think that's been the biggest criticism of it so far from big MCU fans was it they're like like a lot of people are just like why does it look like this why does it feel like this this does not feel like any other Marvel movie is and like people are taking that as a bad thing is what I have seen have you seen similar stuff um, from MCU fans not just like movie culture stuff yeah I've seen a bit of both I've seen people liking Raimi's parts and then people who don't like Raimi's parts um yeah, I, I see a bit of both. And parts is a pretty key word because I, I will say the movie, does, I think it feels like it belongs more to Sam Raimi than any other movie belongs to any other director in this franchise. It feels like they let him cook a lot more than most other directors. Yeah, I agree with that. But there are definitely still parts that are like classic MCU. We can talk about the end credit thing at the end that the mid credit was just like, Oh, we just, it felt like they just ruined whatever Sam Raimi usually does, you know? And it, that one, that one hurt me a lot. But uh, of course I think the, really the last kind of 10 minutes of the big fight at the end felt, you know, pretty standard MCU, but yeah, there's zero character development too. Well, I wouldn't say that. I I didn't think there was like any character development. It was all very very surface layer. Um, I don't know how. Sp- Only case you can make it for is maybe Wanda. I think Wanda's character was really really well done, and I don't know. I guess we're gonna get into a light spoiler here because this isn't necessarily in any of the promo. But Wanda is the main vi- villain of this movie, mm-hmm. and. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, well, why the hell is she a villain? Well, she was a villain in WandaVision. Like, that was not a good thing she was doing. And No, her parts are the best, I thought. Especially when she was going on, like, on her killing spree. No, her parts are definitely the best. But a lot of people are, like, are like saying, like, Wanda should not have been cast as a villain because that was totally out of, you know, out of right field for her character when... We just saw her enslave a town of people and then kind of realize what went wrong. But even still, the she was reading the Darkhold at the very end of the show, you know, right. and we could hear, like, the voices of her kids in it. So we were like, okay, she's about to try and use dark magic to get her kids back. This is not going to go well. And, like, we had seen the Darkhold before with the what-if 
stuff with like the guy, the one that's been dubbed Sinister Strange, which was a. Uh, by the way, that was a complete diversion and like in the in the fucking trailer i really thought we were gonna get that version of dr strange and we didn't i was so upset but regardless um we know that the dark hold pretty much like makes you evil if you're around it too much and she was studying the shit out of that thing so i feel like like i kind of went into it and i forgot about that and I thought she yeah. would be kind of helpful. And then I was like, oh, okay. But then I remembered it and I was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. You know? Yeah, I felt I felt the same way. I think I, I totally had no idea she was going to be the villain going into it. But, yeah, it totally made sense that she was. And, like, in the comics, like, that's what happens. She goes insane trying to get her kids back and, like, becomes a villain. She started off as a villain in the comics, became good, and went evil, and then ends up becoming good again. But... Yeah, and I, I like this version of, like, the standard Marvel villain because she kind of, like, figured out what she was doing wrong at the end. Like, no one, there was no, like, defeating her or anything right. like that. It was all just self-reflection. Well, and, yeah, and so, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess we are giving, we've given away the ending and stuff now, but um, there'll be even more spoilers, so just go ahead and, you know, just skip to the fucking spirited away part if you don't want it because we're going to spoil... Multiverse of Madness, and we're gonna spoil. I'm gonna, I'm gonna spoil a bunch of Sam Raimi movies. Sorry, Jacob. <laughs> and then, um, and yeah. So just, I'll put a timestamp in the description like usual. But what was that? Where was I? Okay. Um, yeah, man. It, it's. Uh, it's a good twist on the typical format of we're just going to beat the shit out of this person because it's quite literally the most powerful being in any universe. Like they explained that. And I think we kind of already knew that about Wanda and it would like any like cheap way of defeating her would have felt cheap, you know? Yeah. I mean, especially when she destroyed professor X, I like, I knew it was over at that. <laughs> I saw somebody slowed that down. She didn't break his neck. She rips his head in half yeah. in, in the dream world or in the in her consciousness. It's That was the most insane thing I've ever seen. That whole scene is awesome. Uh, that was I, easily one of the best scenes Marvel has ever done. It's uh, fucking awesome. And that was, and that, and that there's no coincidence that that was a big, very Raimi-esque fight. For sure. With, it felt very like, similar to like the boys are invincible. Oh yeah, um, yeah, and so the John, uh, I'll say this: the John Krasinski, they did the fan cast. Uh, I was shocked. I had no idea at all he was going to be in this movie. That's one of the things that got ruined for me mm. online, and I was, re- I would have probably peed my pants in the in the in the theater had I not known that was coming. I yeah, still freaked. I that was really cool. I still freaked out when it did happen because, like, you know. There was tons of edits of Tom Cruise being in that shit too, but I didn't believe that for a second. So I was like, "Oh, there's no, there's pro- they're probably not actually doing the Krasinski thing, you know?" Because mm. when is a fan casting ever like come true? I can't think of a time that it has. And yeah. it's great. I think it it worked out great. I've seen a lot of complaints about it, but I don't think they're very valid. I think people just don't like that he's in a show about the CIA, but. I mean, I thought he was one of the worst actors of all time. Like, he is not meant for that role at all. John Krasinski? Yeah, I thought he was terrible in that role. His, his delivery, his lines, I don't know if it was the writing, but he was just not good. I think it'll get better in a fleshed-out 
like in when we actually yeah, see. Yeah, it, it could Fan- just be because we only saw like a little bit of him, but so, I, I thought it was so bad and it was so out of place to me. Um, but I still thought it was cool that he was in it. it well, was cool it, casting. it made sense that he was there because the Illuminati is the smartest people in the world. Like that's the thing about like that's that's their thing and um it's Professor X is one of them, Doctor Doom is one of them. Like it's a bunch of heroes and villains that are like the smartest people in the world. This they used them more as like an Avengers type team, but I think like there shouldn't be like a Captain Britain or a Captain America. There definitely should not be a black bolt on there. There shouldn't and uh probably not a Captain Marvel. Pre- Professor X and and Reed Richards are really the only carryover that they got right on there. And Pro- Professor X, or sorry, Reed Richards is hard to get right. The Fantastic Four is hard to get right just because of how much goes into what they really are. Like, those two movies that Fox did, like, in four hours they couldn't get the elements of these characters right. So I was not expecting Raimi to nail it in, you know, what was like a five-minute appearance. Yeah. But I thought uh, to me it was just so out of place. I thought he looked well, and there's also a bunch of different types of Reed Richards. Like there's there's like there's evil there's evil ones that, and then there's like ones that are overly like you know valiant. I think that was kind of one that was like that right there. Like oh, I'm definitely doing the right thing for humanity. But in a lot of cases, like, he questions himself a lot and is really insecure. Um, and that kind of leads me into where I wanted to go with this, of where I think Marvel is going. I think it's going to result in them doing Secret Wars, which the first Secret Wars was this being named the Beyonder that, like, smashed together a bunch of planets and created a place called Battle World and took all the good characters and all the evil characters and was like, you're going to fight it out and we're going to see if good or evil, you know, truly wins. And isn't that any Marvel movie? It, it was so secret wars was this massive, like event comic run though. I'm not saying that's not what the movie's going to be. I'm saying the comic run was they took lit- like literally every, almost every major hero on the books and every major villain on the books and put them all onto one mashed up planet. And they had various adventures. That's where Spider-Man gets uh, the black suit from the symbiote from. And, you know, and it created just like a long lasting effect on those books for a while. And then they did it again. in I want to say 2015 and this time that this, so this, <laughs> this is going so deep into the comic book shit. So, because well, I have no idea like where Phase Four is going, it makes no sense to me. Well, right this now. is where I think it's going. So, at that point in the comic books, they had two main continuities. There was Earth sixteen ten, which was the Ultimate Universe, which was the, the best. One we're following? No, 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 no. The best, I think, t- touching point for all of these is is Spider Man because each universe has its own Spider Man. Like it's called a Spider Totem. Like, each universe has to have one, and that's typically always a, a touchstone point in these universes. So, in 1610, that universe started with the Ultimate Spider-Man comic run, which was kind of like a... They were like, we're not restarting the Amazing Spider-Man run. That's been going on for 800 issues since the 60s. We're doing a little offshoot just so people can get another character. And then that turned into Ultimate Iron Man, Ultimate Thor, Ultimate Daredevil, and all of them starting in their own books. And then... 
Ultimate Spider-Man dies and the Ultimate comic book series as a whole is going nowhere. They've done these huge events. Nobody's buying them. Nobody's interested in them. And so they say, fuck it. We're going to just hit reset. And they have the, the, the Reed Richards in the Ultimate Universe becomes evil. And calls him, I can't remember what he calls himself, but he finds a way to connect the universes and connect every universe. And then he get links up with Doctor Doom in 616. I think he calls himself the Maker. That's what he calls himself. He links up with the Doctor Doom in 616, which is the main comic continuity is 616. And together they combine pretty much every universe onto one planet where Doctor Doom is God. And... But have we seen any evidence of that yet besides the multiverse stuff? So I don't think it, I, like, I, it doesn't have to be a Reed Richards thing. It doesn't have to be a Dr. Doom thing. I think we're going to get universe collision and it's going to create a situation where only one universe can survive. Cause that's kind of what happened. Like earth, like so the 1610 universe destroyed. They were like, this is how we're getting rid of the Ultimate Comics. Miles Morales came from that universe and just moved on over and lives with his family in 616. And they, like, don't talk about how they're from 1610 ever. You know, they just they swept it under the rug. And so I think we're going to – they were talking about incursions and two universes colliding and one possibly being destroyed when that happens. I think that's what we're going to get here. Interesting. And um, like, yeah, the, I could see it because they they are getting very chaotic and messy right now. The Kang shit is gonna be a big part of it. Like everything going on in Loki. Um, obviously, what happened in Doctor Strange, like they almost caused an incursion in this. And then I think like the end of like the Fantastic Four movie is gonna be like, oh shit, we fucked up. Universes have collided, and now there's like one planet made of every universe, and we have to like get it back you know we have to set it back the right way but like maybe they set up dr doom and fantastic four and he's trying to because he's a big enough bad that a big team-up movie like can be just him the movies have not done him service he is like top tier level like in the in the secret wars book he rips thanos's a thanos uh one of a thanos's spine out of his back and holds it and he's like so you're not as strong as you say you are or whatever. It's insane. Yeah, so we, I mean, that, we can that, get that there. sounds like a cool direction. We can get there. I, I have hope. And then I, like, I think there's, like, rumors of Secret Wars and, like, oh, they want to bring Toby and Andrew back. Like, that's the way to do that. And then, obviously... Well, I think they're doing this multiverse stuff so they can just bring all these people back and just have full advantage to do whatever they want. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we get a spider-man 4 that's a whole other conversation Raimi says he would love to do it and apparently everybody who would want to is like i mean we can do it if we want to like everybody who they would need i doubt we get an amazing spider-man 3 no matter how happy that would make me but like it would spider-man is going to be, become their biggest character i think he's the he's the biggest character marvel owns like as a whole sells the most stuff is spider-man and you know, he's had the biggest movie so far. I don't think Doctor Strange is going to top it. Um, no. So they don't, I mean, they, you know, they want to keep putting him in these big events. And the they teased the Venom stuff 
Secret Wars is originally where that suit came from. Is originally where Venom came from. Like this is, uh, you know, that that's the way to do that. I'm all for it. I don't really I don't care know. about Marvel anymore. After Endgame, I like I don't care. I'm just along for the ride now. My thing with Marvel is, it's I still keep up with it because I love superhero shit, and I'm still in- interested in it. I don't necessarily care where it goes. I just want it to be good. Yeah, um, of course. And then but it's just gotten so frustrating to me because the discourse around it fucking sucks now. Especially with all the, like, like the people saying this is a horror movie. Like, okay, it probably is a Marvel horror movie. This is as horror as I could ever see the MCU going. But, like... The people that are like doing threads that like like about like what could be problematic, like watch just watch a fucking movie, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I don't want to be the guy who's like oh this generation is a bunch of sissies, but like this come on, come on. Well, no, because when you when you get to this big of like a, a fan base for anything, there's the people that want it to stay the same, and there's people that like like when it changes. I think the path, like my opinion is the path of this is to give these movies to really creative directors like Sam Raimi and kind of just let them unleash. Like I'm totally to an extent, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm totally fine with stylistically different Marvel movies and then like obviously like one cohesive team running the team up stuff so those stay the same. Yeah, and that does make sense, especially with the multiverse stuff. Like this is your chance to do that. So right. Um, so now moving on really quickly to Sam Raimi. Uh, I was, I'm a big Sam Raimi guy. I, I probably would put him in my top five favorite directors just because of the, not just because of the Spider-Mans, but also like, I love Evil Dead. It's one of my favorite like franchises of horror movies or horror comedies ever. And I think it's just genius. And, uh, that and drag me to hell i like evil dead 2 and drag me to hell are two of my favorite horror movies and so uh, hang on i'm trying to pull up the imdb real quick and he has not made a movie in a while this is his first one in like nine years the last one he did was uh oz the great and powerful which was in 2013 and so that was another big franchise movie and his lack of control and the poor reception, similarly to what happened with Spider-Man 3, uh, kind of dissuaded him from, you know, being, like, I think directing. He just kind of went to work on small uh, horror TV shows. He made an Ash versus Evil Dead show. And he di- he didn't want to work in the big franchises he also he definitely didn't want to work make a superhero movie well didn't wasn't he originally up for the original doctor strange and then he left because of creative differences um i don't think he was supposed to do the first doctor strange i'm looking right now he had lost faith in himself directing superhero films uh after the backlash from spider-man 3 and then they called him to do this movie, and he had really loved the first one. And uh, so he was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. 
Okay. I, I probably just got that wrong then. Yeah, and he's al- also always loved Doctor Strange, like in, in Spider-Man 2 when uh, Ted Raimi, his brother, is talking to J.K. Simmons' is J. Jonah Jameson. He's, they're like, what's the name we can get for this guy? And he goes, what about Doctor Strange? And he goes, good. Ah, but it's taken. Like, he likes Doctor Strange as a comic character. And um, it was really good to get him back in the saddle, but I just want to talk. So Sam Raimi's style... I think, especially on kind of actionier movies, is very specific. It's one of the most, I think, like visual, like oh, this is Sam, like you know, this is Sam Raimi. I can immediately tell from the way this camera is moving, and like the way he frames it, and the kind of action that's happening on the screen. I feel like it's one of the most individualistic styles uh, in Hollywood right now. And it starts with him making the Evil Dead in like the late '80s, with or the early '80s actually. I forgot it was like a ten-year gap or six-year gap between Evil Dead One and Evil Dead Two, uh, with his fucking friends in uh, the cat in a cabin in Tennessee. They just drove up there and were like, "Let's make a movie." And he made his best friend the star of it, and. It did not have a huge budget, and then they ended up getting a huge budget to do, or not even a huge budget, a decent budget to make another one. And it evolved into, you know, Spider-Man, him getting Spider-Man, into him getting this, and I feel like that is just, like, the ultimate, like, indie director dream, <laughs> kind of, you know? Like, yeah, I just want, directory. I want to make fun shit with my friends about, like, this weird stuff that interests me. Like, the Necronomicon is a book about damned souls made of like bound in flesh and written in blood is like the thing about it. And he was like, yeah, I have this weird idea for like a semi zombie movie and we're going to make it. And it made a bunch of money and studios were like, Hey, let's, it made $2,895,000 worldwide. It has an estimated budget of 350,000, so it was a like, it's a small. It was kind of a remake of an earlier, even earlier short film he had made with the same group of people, and then he got paid even more to remake it again with Evil Dead Two. And the whole time on every single iteration, it's him in the woods with his friends, you know, not really a production crew making making this movie. And the way he's showing you like the evil spirits moving through the woods is he nails and duct tapes a camera to a plank of wood and shakes it around while he runs through a house and it comes out and he's just got such an eye for it that it comes out looking you know like it's on like a mount and it's being very purposely moved but he's just swooping it through and like he talks about how on these movies he kind of just like fucked with his friends a lot and put him in uncomfortable spots that he thought would be funny and it turned out great on the camera like it's it's a dream it's a it feels like a dream story to me and i think it's so i think he's a really funny guy and a really interesting filmmaker and the stuff that interests him is really interesting to me and i'm very glad that he's kind of come back into the pop culture lexicon and i hope he makes more more stuff now it's been a long hiatus yeah, I also hope that like if he does direct more Marvel films, that they give him more leeway than what they did here. Right, like stuff like the 
eyeball popping out at the very beginning. When I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm happy. Like that's a very like that's such a Sam Raimi thing. Like in Drag Me to Hell, literally a char- like one character's eyeball <laughs> flies out and it's such shitty CGI and he does it on purpose. Like he does he'll make effects look bad on purpose to just overplay it because not only does he love horror but he loves comedy so if there's a way he can freak you out and make you laugh like that's exactly what he wants and so like an eyeball pops out and goes into this girl's mouth and it's gross and you're freaked out but you're laughing just at how bad it looks and how over the top it is and then the thing about the thing that really made me happy and made me made it really feel like a Sam Raimi movie for me was the very very end when everything's okay and he is walking through the streets and he feels perfectly fine. He's satisfied. You know, I saved the day. And then all of a sudden, oh shit, third eye pops out. He's screaming in pain. Yeah, that felt like very 2000s. Dude, that's how Evil Dead ends. Like, you know, like you think it's okay, but it's not. That's how he it's loves. Classic ending. He loves it. I mean, he in particular, and it, he does always does it in the same way, is the characters walking away from whatever situation and then it ends with them like on their knees or on the ground screaming and then a tight zoom into their face and like that's how he ends his fucking movies and seeing that made me really happy and then the fucking mid credit scene just i threw a piece of paper on the ground that i had stuff written on i spiked it um the mid credit yeah, scene took it those away aren't part of the movie but it but the cliffhanger of oh shit he's got the third eye now and like it seems like it's going to be a big problem because it was for that other Doctor Strange. And then it just ends with, oh, he's okay with it. We're, we're all better now. And he's using it to his advantage. That like I, I'm fine with it ending up being that. But getting it that suspense immediately taken away, just I feel like is that's something that I think Marvel needs more of. Yeah, I mean, it seems they just like tack that on. I don't think Raimi had any choice in that i mean i wouldn't be surprised if like feige took a couple cameras and made him go shoot that shit himself like yeah <laughs> that's because there's a way to like introduce that character which if anybody doesn't know i can't remember her name it's played by Charlize their own but it's dormammu's niece and dormammu's the villain of the first doctor strange of course and she ends up becoming a love interest for steven later on and it's going to open up even more like interdimensional stuff like her appearing is like a is a big reason people like think secret wars is coming but like you can just have her like pop in and like go like find wong and be like where the hell is steven we don't need her to go to him and he's okay you know just let us live with that like there's yeah, it didn't bother me as much. I was just, I saw it just mainly as just like introducing that new character. But yeah, I, I do see I do see what you're saying with the third eye. Well, I feel like if you had done what I asked and watched Evil Dead <laughs> and and dragged me to hell, and you kind of saw this type how he how good this type of ending works for him, like he loves to make kind of a his movies are kind of mean sometimes. You know what I'm like? They're mean. Yeah. They're and. He loves to end them on a good, just mead note. And that just kind of getting taken away was like, I was so happy Marvel let him do that. And then it just ripped my heart out. <laughs> they took it away from him immediately. Um, 
but then they for you. but then they gave it back to him by letting Bruce Campbell be the very last post-credit scene, and he's done punching himself in the face and looks directly in the camera, and says it's over, and then the immediate movie immediately cuts black. I thought that was great. Everyone in the th- I was in the theater with was like, "Well, what the hell was that?" And I was like, "That was fucking Sam Raimi. That's what that was." I mean, they've done that before. They do like the Captain America one. Oh yeah, I know, but like. Nobody, but like people were particularly like, well, what the fuck was the point of that showing that guy again? Like that's Bruce Campbell, that's Sam Raimi's best friend. He's in every movie he makes, you know. Like mm, it's yeah. awesome. Um, I, was, I got a, I got a question for you about okay. multiverse of madness. Um, so in Spider Man, the multiverse, when they go to different universes, it's uh, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, and it's Tom Holland, and like okay. And then in this one, when they go to different ones, it's the right. same Doctor Strange. It's Benedict Cumberbatch in every single one. He looks exactly the same. So, so I was curious why they didn't change Doctor Strange in this one. Because there, that's not always it's not always necessarily the same exact copy or a different person. It's sometimes it's like the same exact. Like there's so much variability in these universes. That sometimes like they look exactly the like and alike and have like similar backgrounds and stuff, um, or sometimes they like look like completely different people but have a shared name and shared powers. And so, like this happens in the comics too. Like there's like a Japanese Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. There's uh, Peter Parker who is a 1940s old man. You know, like that's yeah, I mean, the... it's infinite possibilities. Yeah, right. And so. But there's also Peter Parkers that look exactly the same as each other. Okay, okay, fair and enough. And so, I mean, it obviously just, obviously, you know, it depends. Like, so that's why they introduced variants first. Like, the, like the people that look different, I guess you can attribute to being variants. And those variants, the I think what the point of Loki was is those variants always existed, but it never really infringed upon their main timeline that like the timekeepers were trying to keep or whatever uh but after what happened with loki they were allowed to bleed over which is what led to the situation in no way home okay and so um they introduced the idea of variants to explain kind of peter and toby and and you know toby toby tom andrew peters but they already had a J.K. Simmons that was, you know, the same guy. Um, and that's considered a doppelganger, I think, is what they, is what it's been called. My thinking is, can they, like, has this character been played before by a different person? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. So, like, they still have wiggle room for it not to be John Krasinski in the MCU. But Jack Ryan is ending after this next season, and Fantastic Four development's about to start. So it's probably going to be Krasinski, but they had wiggle room if they like if like it was a huge uproar about him. Yeah, I think it's Marvel's giving themselves some leeway, right? And um, I think I mean I don't know. I kind of think it's more fun when it's the same person. But obviously, if there's been an established actor there before, then like they have to include that. Uh, yeah, it just seems like there's like no real rules. They're just doing what they want. Which well, is that's fine, the but... fucking point of the multiverse. <laughs> like, yeah. there are no rules really. The only rules in these multiverses, at least in the comics, is that like they're all 
connected to the I think it's called the Great Web, which is all connected through the different spider totems, and the spider totems are the different spider men. It's right. weird, dude. And it's weird how much of the continuity is tied to Spider Man in the comics. But yeah, like there always has to be a Spider Man present or something. It's very strange. But I'm happy with it. I liked it. I thought it was very fun. I need to see it again. Yeah, I don't think I'll be seeing it anytime soon, but <laughs> it was cool. I, I loved all the moments that Raimi actually got to do himself. Right. Go watch more Sam Raimi movies, dude. I will. I didn't spo- I didn't end up I, I thought I was gonna talk about the ending of Drag Me to Hell, but I didn't. I should have, but I didn't. I'll let people watch that for themselves. Um, all right. Your favorite part of it was the Avatar trailer. Hell yes. Um, um what a trailer. What a trailer. We live in a terrible time. <laughs> I mean, I I was I really didn't want to see anything from this movie, but I had to. I literally had to. Uh, well, this was the best kind of trailer. Let's show you the yeah. visuals, but you don't know what's happening. This is how you do a trailer, for sure. Although, the fucking general guy is back. Did you notice that? No. Well, One of died, the right? No, he's not dead. Apparently, he's the villain. Oh, right. They kind of ev- left it a mystery at the end. He's the villain of every single one of these movies, apparently. Mm. They the the Navi that were like going like in the you know bulletproof vest holding the guns that were going like it's like a one shot where they're going under a tree has the eagle tattoo that he had on. Oh, interesting. And I was like, and then like you can somebody on Twitter because you know we have to have fucking Twitter sleuths compared the faces of like the navi and you know the actor and they look exactly the same so interesting route um yeah man. the visuals just look incredible uh the score was beautiful um, yeah the sound is great i can't wait to get back into that universe <laughs> i see that's weird to me i don't know how many people were chomping at the bit to get back in that no i don't think anyone is but now, <laughs> they're, now they're gonna be um you know Props to James Cameron for getting to do this weird vision that he loves. That's awesome. Not many people get to do that, get to get an insane budget to just make what you're passionate about. James Cameron, one of the greatest to ever do it. Uh, like I said, I'd, I'm, 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 I, if I could watch like a silent movie of these – like the shots of them flying and going through the water on the whales. That's like 35 minutes long. That's my ideal avatar movie. Silence. Nah. I mean, maybe like the nature sounds. I don't want, I look dude. That movie is dances with wolves, but in space and the story, it means nothing in these films. It's he goes all for the experience. I know, but that's, but that's my point is like movie, like, that's why I would be totally fine with 35 minutes of just the nature sounds and like a really good score. And it's just them running through the jungles and flying on the dinosaurs. Uh, I don't and... know. I disagree. I kind of just like having a basic story while getting fully immersed into the experience and just enjoying it for what it is. I don't want to be limited to 35 minutes. I want a full two hours of this thing. Well, a lot of people are mad that this movie is getting made and is coming out. Well, they're going to change their minds once they see it. Not only because of the originality of the story, but it's getting the, you know, this is 
like classic white savior shit, which is like that's exactly what Dances with Wolves is too. But like, I don't know. I hope it doesn't go that way. You know, of like, because that's kind of true. Like these people need needed the white man to lead them is kind of what happens in that movie. I don't know what I want. Did they have a kid in the trailer? By the way, there were kids. I don't know if it was their kids. And what was that gray? Was it gray? Dude, gray what? Like it looked like a gray kind of navi, and it looked like it was supposed to be their kid. I don't know. Definitely got some world building. I was thinking about it. Like, there's no way that they could have a kid because he is quite literally a fake body. They didn't give them reproductive organs. I don't know how that works. I'm not a Navi expert here. I mean, is it going to be like Blade Runner? <laughs> is it going to be like Blade Runner? Like, you know, oh my God, all of a sudden a replicant had a child. How did that happen? <laughs> Maybe. Um, but I'm just ready to get fully immersed into another James Cameron avatar with new CGI. Looks incredible. Uh, a lot of the people attacking it for like, you know, the, oh, this plot is done before and really poorly timed. Um have been taking shots at the visuals and I was like, look, say what you want about the plot visuals of this new trailer. Say what you want about the plot. Nothing looks like this right now. Like somebody was like, this looks like video game. Like Marvel's doing way better than this. No, they're not. What? Not even close. You see the water dripping off these people. It was crazy. The water drops, the movement of the water when everything is so smooth when he's coming out of the, it looks real. Like it looks real. I mean, I will be seeing it probably not opening day because Shazam comes out that day or something got moved to that day. I don't think actually I think something got moved away from that day. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm gonna see it. There's no doubt I'm gonna see it. I'm probably gonna see it in 3D. IMAX 3D, baby. I'm in. Um, let's see. What's the release date? Yep. Oh man, I am gonna see it on opening day. Nothing else is releasing that day. Everybody yeah. got scared away. Damn it. You can't beat James Cameron. <sighs> Jimmy Cameron, legend. Terminator 2. Best thing he's ever made. Stand by that. Terminator 2 is the best movie. Did you freeze or are you upset with me? No. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> or, sorry, you're right. It's Aliens. Aliens is the best thing he's ever made. No, it's Terminator 2. It's Terminator 2. I love Terminator 2. Do you want to talk about Spirited Away? Let's do it. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Album Book Club. Album Book Club is an online and in-print magazine where you can find tons of information about new music and up-and-coming artists. Issue number three has just been released and contains featured articles about Gio Sama and Lil Boy. Check out the website, albumbookclub.com, for ordering info as well as great articles updated regularly by ABC members. Don't forget to check them out on Twitter at AlbumBookClub1 for updates and curated picks to whatever the club is listening to. And welcome back from that break. It is time to talk about Spirited Away. The Well, you know what? I keep doing this to you. I keep ste- stepping on your part. Why don't you tell us who's in it, who directed it, what it's about? Yeah, Spirited Away. Um, this is directed by and written by Hayao Miyazaki. 
Um, he is, I guess, well known as one of the best anime directors of all time. Um, and Spirited Away is definitely his most influential and I guess most well known as well. Uh, first movie to ever, first anime to ever win Best Animated Feature, which is a huge achievement. Um, was the second? Well, wasn't it the second year that award existed? Um, it might have been, but still, the fact that an, an <laughs> anime made it all the way there, and it hasn't since. It's true. This is the only movie, anime movie that it has. Um, it is about during her family's move to the suburbs, a sullen ten-year-old girl wanders into a world ruled by gods, witches, and spirits, and where humans are changed into beasts. Um, so Bo and I watched the dubbed version. Um, so I'll read the English voice actors. Um, I'm probably gonna butcher these, but David Chase, um, Jason Martin, uh, Suzanne Plachette, David Ogden Steers, Susan Egan, Michael Ch- Chiklis, Lauren Holly, John Ratzenberger, and Tara Strong. Yeah, so for the review, I went again to the treasure trove that is Roger Ebert. Um, he's just the best at it, uh, but he's not always right. But he is right about this. Give it four stars. That's his highest review. Um, you know what? I have a feeling this was not his first review because this review was in 2012. This is definitely one of his fucking re-reviews. That probably means he gave it a bad review the first time. <laughs> he yeah. loves to do that. He d- he'll d- he'll give a movie like two and a half or three stars that like goes on to be a masterpiece. And he was like, you know what? Looking at it again, I really thought. Um, so, oh my god, 2012, and it's only his third time watching it. Wow. All right. So I'll just read this opening paragraph because I think it's hits on a lot of points that people really like about Miyazaki. Viewing Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away for the third time, I was struck by equality between generosity and love. On earlier viewings, I was caught up by the boundless imagination of the story. This time, I began to focus on the elements in the picture that didn't need to be there. Animation is a painstaking process, and there's a tendency to simplify its visual elements. Miyazaki, in contrast, offers complexity. His backgrounds are rich in detail, his canvas embraces the space liberally, and it is all drawn with meticulous attention. We may not pay much conscious attention to the corners of the frame, but we know they're there, and they reinforce the remarkable precision of his fantasy worlds. Yeah, uh, that's a a pretty good description. Um, I feel like, yes, uh, what he says about, like, detail and animation, Maizaki definitely does the best. He, he, He cares deeply about, like, every single background detail and character. Um, but you also see kind of like Pixar and Disney films kind of do the same thing where they do pay attention to the little things like that. I think the big thing that stands out with Miyazaki is he just creates such specific feelings that like no other film can capture. Um, and this one specifically, I think Spirited Away captures that like feeling of like happy, sad nostalgia, uh, even for things that like it made me feel nostalgic for things I've never even done before. Um, and it just creates this like sense of like magic and wonder better than like any other Disney or Pixar movie has done. He just like somehow able to capture this like, yeah, like Mizak that uh, Ebert said, um, imagination and just like magic and wonder and these these feelings that like it's so hard to even like describe because it's just like you feel it when you watch these movies and it's just like a breath of fresh air every time. I went hunting for Ebert's first review. I don't know why he re-reviewed this. He gave it four stars the first time. 
and basically gushes about it and says the exact same thing. He says the exact same thing. Yeah, I think he's just trying to get more people to watch this movie. (laughs) Miyazaki's works have a depth depth and complexity often missing in American animation. Not fond of computers, he draws thousands of frames himself, and there's a painterly richness in his work. He's famous for throwaway details at the edges of the screen. Animation is so painstaking that few animators draw more than is necessary. Which is true. That's another good thing about Miyazaki is he draws all of that shit for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I do like this part. This is from 2002, the 2002 one. Because many adults have any rational reluctance to see an animated film from Japan, parentheses, or anywhere else, which is why we're doing this month, you know, I begin with reassurances. It has been flawlessly dubbed into English by John Lasseter. It was co-winner of this year's Berlin film against quote-unquote regular movies, and it passed Titanic to become the top-grossing film in Japanese history. Yeah, I mean, Miyazaki's films are for all ages. Um, yeah. From, like, yeah, any age you could watch this movie and enjoy it for what it is. And, uh, you know... There's there's probably some ages where some of this shit would freak out little kids, but it's oh, yeah. okay. It's okay to freak out little kids. Yeah. Because at the at the especially at the root of all this is like everything that starts off scary in this movie does not end up being scary. Yeah, right? and he's basing on like overcoming fears. So that's obviously like a big theme in the movie. Like they t- in- intentionally like made like a recurring theme like keeping moving forward and not letting anything stop you yeah i mean I, when i first watched this film i was, I was pretty young um i don't remember like f- for a full sit down experience when i was young but i remember having this on the tv and yeah that shit was scary especially all the creatures and i think what really got to me was the parents turning into the pigs in the beginning um that's that was fucking terrifying yeah and just like imagining that happening to like your own parents is just like super scary especially as a kid and yeah, seeing, like, um, the main character's terror in her eyes and just, like, having to go through all this, this mystical stuff by herself. Um, yeah, it, it definitely is scary, and I think that's definitely the point. And, yeah, it just it creates that feeling inside of you. Um, but, yeah, it, it can be scary, but then, like, he reassures you throughout and creates this, this like, this happy, sad mix. Um, one of the craziest shit like one of the craziest things about Miyazaki is that he does not have a story finished until the movie's finished. Do you know that? What do you mean by that? He starts with an idea of a story. He's never written a script. He says Miyazaki's films never have scripts. I don't have the story finished and ready when we start work on a film. The filmmaker told Midnight Eye, sorry, I usually don't have the time, so the story develops when I start drawing storyboards. The production starts very soon thereafter while the storyboards are still developing. Yeah. So he, Miyazaki does not know where the plot is going, and he lets it happen organically. It's not me who makes the film. The film makes itself, and I have no choice but to follow. That's kind of insane to start production on a movie. Well, it's, like, it's because, like he said, the storyboards take forever, and especially right. with the amount of details. Like we've t- I talked about this before, but when I went to the Academy Museum in the Maizaki, the main thing they showed there was his storyboards, like his raw storyboards. And you just walk around and look at all of them, and they're so detailed. It's insane. And these are storyboards, like not even the actual frames of production. Like he's just drawing these to, to draw it out. And it's just insane the amount of detail and effort he puts into all these things. And it makes sense why he has no script because he's putting all the detail as he like goes. And I'm sure like as he's like drawing these frames and putting more detail in the background, he's starting to like fully flesh out the world himself. And it totally makes sense. It is just, I know, but it is 
bonkers to me. It's a flow of consciousness. <laughs> Write a two-hour movie. It's also he's like a he's a one-man band. Like he has his animators, obviously, but he does all this himself. So it's coming from his head, and he kind of understands it all. Versus other movies where you have to work in a huge team. It's kind of. I mean, I just find that stuff like so impressive. Oh, yeah. though. Like Stephen. Like Stephen King's one of my favorite authors, and probably my favorite author. And like all of his shit is. He was like, I come up with characters and put them in a situation, and then I let them solve it. I let the story happen to them. And I'm like, well, first of all, probably the cocaine helped him with that <laughs> in the early days. But I don't understand how people do that, dude. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, Tarantino does I, the I, same thing, too, and he writes his scripts. Well, like I said, well, all these people that we're naming are considered, like, geniuses in their craft, mm-hmm. though, is the thing. Like, it's not easy. It's not like I could free like no, I could, it's not like, easy, not at all. Flow of consciousness, like write a paper about something, but I have a subject and a goal, and I know where I'm going, and I just kind of write it as it comes to me. But that's not me making like an intricate world with all these different types of spirits and rules and stuff. Like it's insane. Yeah, I mean that's why they're the greats. Um, this is my first time watching this movie. And yeah, so let's hear your I've... full experience. So this is your first Miyazaki what... film? No, it's my second. Okay. The first one I watched was Kiki's Delivery Service, which is another very, very good one. And the, I, if it was my choice, I would not have watched it this early. I was kind of saving it. I don't know why. I do. Do you do that with movies? Do you have like I'm gonna? This is not like this isn't the right time for me to watch this movie. Of like, course. I need yeah. to. It's gotta be the right this, time for I, every movie I watch. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't feeling the right time for this movie quite yet. And then I ended up, you know, I was like, fuck it. I'm going to make it the right time. I, wa- I actually ended up watching it before the poll even happened, before the poll f- concluded, like 12 hours before, because I was like, it's probably what's going to win. And if not, then I get to watch one of the best Miyazaki films, one of the best animated films of all time. And I was blown away by it. Frankly, like, it was gorgeously animated. It's, absolutely unreal uh i thought the people the people that got to do the voice work was really really good um or were really really good and the depth of the story was really impressive for something meant for children yes because there is a surface level that kids can understand you know got to get parents back um you know got to get parents back got to get out of the spirit world but then there's like a depth to it that uh, adults can pick up on and i think you ca- if you're a kid you kind of get the subtle messages of you know conquering fears and like scary things don't always have to be scary you can come over them but i think it's a lot more overt as an adult and one really impressive thing that it does when you're a kid you always kind of have a sense of wonderment when you're watching anything but when you're an adult, this movie kind of gives you that same feeling. Yeah, agreed. I think that's the same for a lot of Miyazaki's. Uh, this is a really colorful one, but it's more mute, like a more of a muted palette, especially on the scenes when they're inside. Definitely muted. Uh, stuff like Kiki's Delivery Service, where he gets to be more colorful and like have like you know like when he's out doing stuff outside, it's so much blue and green. And that's kind of typically what I've seen from him, really. Like, if you look at the covers of the movies he's directed, like, they're all, almost all of the covers have a lot of blue or, or a lot of green on them. Yes, this one's very this secluded is, in his filmography. Right. This is the only one that's, like, black, 
on the screen and a lot of there's a lot of browns and like darker reds and stuff and i thought that was quite interesting to see because like i said the only one i had seen before was like all of like this sort of color palette and it was amazing that this one felt just as colorful but was still more muted and darker yeah, I mean, yeah, it was definitely had a lot of darkness, especially that uh, that black gooey monster that took over. Also, yeah, very that was scary a... too. Yeah, man, that was a freaky one. Um, I did not. I was like, oh, I do not necessarily care for this. The noise it makes too. Um. Oh yeah. Oh. Eh. Stop. <laughs> Stop. I had to do it once. No, you didn't. You just didn't. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going through the filmography right now. Um, Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away are the only ones that don't really have a bunch of blue on the cover. Kiki, the IMDb Kiki's Delivery Service doesn't, but in most other covers it does. And I would say Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away is kind of about as dark as he gets, right? Like, um, Yeah, I'd say so. I mean... Yeah, Spirit Away also does have its bright moments, like especially in the beginning when they're before no, yeah. they they go into the spirit world, um, the lush greenery, and when they're driving around, and at the end too when she gets on the train and it goes through the water and she's flying on the dragon, like it's super blue, and that's like one of the most iconic scenes in the movie, because um, I I think that they, he did that for on purpose, where you're in the secluded spirit world for so long, and then there's finally there's freedom and they're out in the open and it's just them. Um, and yeah, it, it really hits. Right. And I think that's another intentional thing. You know, we were talking about how a big theme of this is to keep moving forward. And this is once again, you know, even when it's dark, there's going to be bright spots and you're going to get through it in the end. And like, that's why, you know, she'll be in the bathhouse for a while, but then she looks out the window and sees Haku flying around, uh, you know, over the ocean and there's all those deep blues. And then when they're going over the bridge, even to the pig, farm it's still in this really beautifully drawn area surrounding it and this is because i mean the stuff he does make is for kids it's a hundred percent for children the main parts of it i think he made this movie he was going to retire after princess mononoke but he was inspired to make this film after seeing a friend's sullen 10 year old daughter is what the imdb trivia says and so you know a lot of his ideas do come from kids the idea for the n next one that he's doing and which he says is going to be his last one is like inspired and dedicated to his grandson like he very much has i think likes to include that childlike sense of wonderment and make this stuff okay for kids which is why it's going to have happy endings and stuff's always going to work out and it's always it's always going to be brightly colored even when it's somehow supposed to feel dark yeah i mean i think he's just trying to give I think, yes, it's, it's directed towards kids a little bit, where he just wants to give kids that sense of imagination and wonder in mm -hmm. their own lives. But I also think it has the same effect on adults, where like a lot of adults like still don't feel that way, and he's trying to get that same feeling onto them as well. But obviously he'd rather have it at a younger age where they can grow into it. Um, so... I think we did. We talked about this on the Donnie Darko pod, but Davy Chase like had such a fucking hot streak in the early two thousands, late nineties. Donnie Darko in two thousand one, 
uh, actually, yeah, just Donnie Darko in 2001. No, nothing before that, really. And then she did, like, Lilo and Stitch. And then she was the girl in the ring. And Spirited Away was the same year as Lilo and Stitch. Like, that's kind of a fucking fire run right there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, when you, I feel like voice acting is kind of tough to come across. So when there is a good one, they, they stick with it. She was really, really young when she did it. This role? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, She's playing a, a really, really young character. It's I know, but, like, she was very ta- – like, she's super talented, though. Like, Spirit, Donnie Darko this is the same age she was when Donnie Darko came out. This came out. Yeah. Um, and with anime specifically, like, there's always um, people who are always against dubbed versions and people who are only for subversions. Um but Miyazaki's films usually always kind of get a pass because the dubs are really good and he puts care and effort into them the same way he does with the subversions. I don't get how she, a year later, was in the ring. She she was, that's fucking terrifying. She, like, won an MTV award for, like, being in the ring or something. It's crazy. Davy Chase, untapped potential. Bring her back. Put her in more stuff. What are we doing? Prodigy. I mean, you know, Grace is taking a break. I'm <laughs> sure she has got plenty of money now. She probably does. She hasn't made a movie in quite some time. 2016, and it was voice of a video game. Oh no, and a movie. Wow. Slept on. Davy Chase. Moving on from Davy Chase. Um. I see. The, so, I think Roger Ebert just to kind of bring it back to that. He included in his review like it's hard to get adults to go see animated Japanese movies or any animated movie, and that's the point of this month, I think. And he, we've started off with two kids movies, and we'll do another kids movie next week when we do the Disney animation. Uh, but even if they're targeted towards kids like a lot of animation is i think this and toy story and whatever we do next week are really good examples of yeah it's meant for kids but there's plenty substance there for adults to like you know recognize and uh, and relate to i I think the the shtick around just animation in general and why it's kind of directed towards kids is a thing that a lot of animated films do is they exaggerate the features and emotions of characters. So they, they look different, they look, they look cartoonish, and they, they act cartoonish. Um, but one thing Maizaki does different is he doesn't do that, really. Um, he sticks very grounded and realistic, um, and I think that really helps of catering towards adults and making it feel just, like, real. Um, but he also still is able to create that sense of magic and wonder that these other films do without having to get cartoonish and silly like that. Yeah, but, like, I, I would argue that, like, the fucking Marvel movies are basically, are, like, live-action cartoons, you know? Yeah. I, and, like, it's a... I hate doing this with all types of movies. It's annoying when one thing is compared to another and the big joke now is oh that's not cinema or whatever cinema is whatever the fuck you want it to be you know it's a kind of a personal 
thing, like all you know, and my, my thing is every every movie is probably somebody's favorite movie, and this kind of shitting on particular genres or studios and stuff, like I'm okay with somebody being like I don't like that movie, but like it's the tearing it down and boiling it down to one aspect, like you like boiling down Marvel to generic crap. Elizabeth Olsen said it really well. That's uh, diminishing what you know these crews do, these massive crews and people who work really hard on all this stuff and kind of dedicate their life to it. Or um, I don't know what's a movie that I hate. Like I don't like those fucking Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies, but I know a lot of people who think those are really fun movies. I'm gonna just say like, yeah, I personally think they're bad, but I'm not gonna be like you're a goddamn idiot for liking that movie. And just like. I think with people who are really into animation can kind of get boiled down to, Oh, you know, that's kid shit. Grow up, watch a real movie. That's like my biggest problem with it. Like that was Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse that didn't catch on until it got onto Netflix because nobody wanted to go to theaters to see, Oh, I'm not going to go see the animated Spider-Man movie. What the fuck am I going to go see that shit for? I don't have a kid with me, you know? Yeah, no, it definitely has that shtick around it. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just saying the reason why I think it does have that shtick. No, I know, I know. But like that, especially today, I think that exaggeration can do people a lot of good because I think, you know, people like are not don't identify with emotions as well as they used to. I don't think. Yeah. Especially, particularly their own. Yeah. You know, and I think. Like, even as an example, like a movie like Inside Out, like a lot of adults could be like, oh, I am feeling angry sometimes. Or like, oh, I get like, there's useful shit in this. Like, it's so the kid shit. Yeah, it we watched it for a reason. It teaches you about this type of stuff. And sometimes even adults need a fucking refresher. Watch a kid's movie, a kid's movie. Yeah, I also think it kind of comes from the idea that when i guess when we were younger not really older generations but when we were younger like we when we watch kid shows they're all cartoons they're all animated um mm-hmm. and those are obviously directed towards kids and yes they're, they're, they do the same thing as the movies where there are like adult jokes here and there there are some made for adults obviously um but yeah it, it kind of had that stigma where it's just like saturday morning cartoons like you watch, it's a, it's a kid thing and i think that I've translated it when it made its way into feature films as well Right. It's annoying. It's an annoying stigma because I like I know people who already have a stigma against animation as a whole. Yeah. And then when it's like, oh, you know, I wasn't really recommending Spirited Away because I hadn't seen it. But if I'm like, oh, watch like Kiki's Delivery Service or something. Uh, they're like, uh, from they would look it up and be like, oh, animation, oh, child, it's like under children's movie or family or something. They're like, nope, not watching that shit. Like, I'm only... Like and I'm and I, <laughs> like I'm sticking to fucking hardcore David Fincher serial killer movies. I have no time. And once again, it's a personal preference thing. But like, it's just I don't, yeah. And I, I think I that's why this film had like such a big impact because everyone that I've known that's watched it ends up like really liking it and then getting into animated movies more. Um, like right. The person I talked about last week who didn't like Toy Story, she watched this and she and she really liked it. Um, and yeah, I think it just this this movie just had such like a big impact on the animation genre itself and just movies in general. But 
specifically in the animated genre, like it really opened up a lot of people's eyes into what animation can be. Um, and yeah, it just did such a good job of being um, like a movie that anyone can get into for all audiences. Um, and I think it did leaps and bounds for the anime style. Yes, also that as well. Because um, obviously a huge stigma around anime. Um, that's just, it's more of a culture thing. But um, yeah, I, this definitely got a lot of people into anime as well, which is great. Right, and that is something that has become hugely... Um, it's, it's a huge part of, I think, our cultural lexicon now in America. Yeah. Like... Whether it's uh, whether or not it's people watching a bunch of it or getting made fun of for watching it, I, I feel like too. anime is has a bigger audience in America than just animated movies in general. Yeah, and it'll be the same people who watch a bunch of anime, will, but will like scoff at a fucking you know Disney animated right. movie and something that just kind of bothers me too because it's a little hypocritical. But like, you know, I think the there's two big jumping off points into this style and they are Miyazaki and Avatar the Last Airbender and I watched Avatar and Kiki's Delivery Service for the first time around the same time like two or years ago or so and I was like oh this is a really fucking cool medium yeah like I already liked animation stuff I was like animation is awesome and I kind of wanted to get and to anime because it always just looks really creative and interesting and uh, you know whether or not maybe there's a great story there it's going to be interesting to look at and then avatar is obviously considered is like an american show but like you know it's that style and then miyazaki i think makes really trans easy easily translatable introductions into the medium like and that's really impressive considering the m amount of depth he puts into it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's just like you said, like it's so widely accessible to anyone and that's so hard to do. Like even with American movies in other countries, um, like I, I mean, obviously like Marvel and big movies do well in other countries, but um, it's very hard to get a movie that translates with every culture. Um, and Miyazaki is one of those people that, that can really do that. And that's really how like, it really comes down to just like those feelings that you experience um throughout the movie it's like it doesn't matter about the story or what it's about or anything like that it's like it's just the feeling that he creates um he just does such a good job with it it's universal and one of the most important parts of that just you know we've mentioned this before is the voice casting and the you know dubs is it's you're not there's they have a really good team around this that you're not losing anything in the translation like they added context like to these like conversations like there's one line where Chihiro says to herself like oh it's a it's a bathhouse and then um like they added that in for american audiences cuz they were like oh japanese audiences would know this is a bathhouse but american audiences won't yeah they put care so, and effort into it which a lot of right. anime unfortunately doesn't because it is tough. It, it's basically redoing the whole show in a different language. Right. Um, but yeah, Miyazaki really cares, which is great. Um, when you watch like Attack on Titan, do you watch it subtitles or dub? No, 100% subbed. Um, usually my rule of thumb for animes when it comes to that is 
I usually just do a Google search and see like what people are saying about it. And most of the time, the subbed version is better. Um, but occasionally, there are ones where people do like the dub a lot, and I'll end up going with the dub. Um, like a big one is Cowboy Bebop. A lot of people, there's an argument that the dub is better than the sub, which is very, very rare. Um, but in that case, that's like one of the one occasions where people recommend the dub over the sub. Um, but yeah, most of the time I usually am watching subbed because the dub is just, there's not that much effort put into it and it doesn't hit as hard. And that really affects the way you watch the show. Did you watch Squid Game? No. Oh my God, you didn't watch Squid Game? Why not? Because for the exact reason you just said. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Because everybody was like, you haven't seen Squid yeah. Game? Um, I was going to ask Deborah Sub. There's a huge argument about that. About subbed over dubbed? Yeah. How people should be watching the subbed? Yeah. Um, Apparently, like, entire lines are completely... Di- like, entire, like, almost plot points are changed by, like, yeah. the way this... Like, yeah, it, voice acting, like, it matters a lot, especially the way you say I things, know. so... Right, no, I know. <laughs> and, um... Into the microphone? You don't have to sneeze into the microphone. <laughs> what? I did not sneeze into the microphone. I mean, it picked up pretty loud, but we're going to keep on moving. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I have sneeze. I have allergies. I know. I'm joking. Allergies, quote unquote. They're real. <clears throat> not, just a long, not just a long night last night. Um, <laughs> but I completely forgot where I was going. Voice acting? Fuck. Voice acting? Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, voice acting is really important. I think – and really talented voice actors are really hard to come by but even more so with anime with anime like japanese anime or any foreign film being translated into a dub you need a team that's willing to like actually put in a ton of effort into the translations so i always wonder how hmm. so i went to this is a weird story i've always kind of wondered if like People who like watch a Marvel movie in Germany is a good example. Do they prefer it to be subtitled or dubbed? And I actually saw Spider-Man Far From Home in Austria, and I kind of got the answer. They had it. There was a bunch of dubbed showings, or not dubbed. I, yeah, there was a bunch of dubbed sh- showings in dubbed in German, and then a bunch of subtitled showings with the subtitles on the screen. And I went to one with German subtitles on the screen. And obviously, because I'm not going to go see the fucking German. I don't know German, but I'm I'm not going to go see the German show. It was just really, really interesting. Because I wondered how many of those people were, especially in Europe, I guess, because English is really commonly spoke there. But I wonder how much of it was, like, them, like, kind of combining their knowledge of, like, English as a spoken language with like the reading of the subtitles, you know? Yeah. I think it really just varies from like studio to studio or director to director, um, how much effort they want to put into these other languages. It's, it's so weird. Cause I've always, I've also always thought like, you know, it's annoying not hearing the actor's true voice, I think with dub stuff for me sometimes. Yeah. And but like, if you can't understand it, like you almost all, sometimes need the dub. It's fair it's very strange huh interesting i've never thought about that even though i've had that experience of like going to an austrian movie theater i've also never seen subtitles on a movie screen before 
They don't because we don't do that in America. Yeah, I, mean, I uh, guess for well, we do for foreign for films. Foreign films, yeah. Um, but yeah, unless there's a dubbed version, which they'll show, or maybe we don't show dubbed versions. I don't know. No, we do. It, it varies. Like I've seen Miyazaki films in theaters; they're usually subbed. Um, Wait, what? I've seen Miyazaki films in theaters before. Right. They're usually subbed, but not 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 dubbed. They're no. subtitled. Yeah. Really? Yeah. They do have the dubbed That's... ones, but although like there's usually options. Like there's a sub one and a, a dub showing. Like they do both, but I usually go to the sub. Um. But yeah, no, when you go to other countries, they will have subbed and dubbed. Right. It's just much more common, I guess, because we're the biggest film industry. Yes. <laughs> That's interesting. Miyazaki, opening, opening doors to questions around the globe. <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> Look at us thinking globally. Yeah. Um, real quick, oh, we didn't do this in the first half because I kind of forgot. Unless, Do you have anything left on uh, Miyazaki? No, it's just a, it's an incredible film. I love this film. It's not my favorite Miyazaki, but I understand its impact, and I still love it a lot. Um, it's I've watched it plenty of times. Very um, watchable. Beside, oh sorry. Besides Doctor Strange, what have you seen this last week? We didn't do that in the first half. Um, I, am I catching you off guard? No, that's fine. I can I can do some quick thinking here. Uh, I've only seen one other thing, so it's not hard. Uh, I saw the unbearable weight of massive talent. Oh, fuck yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, sure. Yeah, it was fun. I liked it. It was cool. Um, I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun little film. Um, it was very silly. It was a lot more like silly than I thought it was going to be. Um, yeah. But it, it was very funny, and uh, Nick Cage was great. Um, it was cool seeing him in like, all his like different roles and just like how self-aware the whole movie was about being uh, like a generic movie. Um yeah, no, it was a fun time. Um, the, two, the two leads were great, and it was, it was just a good time at the theater. It was very funny to watch Nick Cage versus Nikki Coppola yeah. um, argue with each other. So there's, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's going to be included on, like, the DVD extras. There's a scene that they cut that was Nick Cage versus Nikki Coppola in black and white where they kind of both cycle through the costumes of his most iconic roles and fight each other in like a Kung Fu fight. Oh, that's awesome. And they cut it. I'm hurt, but I will watch the shit out of that. <laughs> I might buy this movie just for that. So. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was a really fun movie and a good time at the theater. So good movie. Um, I just, I, I watched three movies besides spirited away since, well, I guess Doctor Strange, but uh, since Toy Story, I've seen Doctor Strange. And then I saw, I watched the 2013 Evil Dead remake that Sam Raimi stands by and a lot of people say is, like, pretty good. So I was like, okay, I'm going to check this out. It was directed by Fede, Fede Alvarez. Fede Alvarez, I think is his name. And um, since then, he's gone on to do, like, uh, Don't Breathe and the girl in the spider's web and then he did some tv shows <clears throat> but it was fine it was very like you know 2013 was kind of you know the late 2000s to kind of early 2010s was that era of like everybody's dressed in like moody goth kind of clothes and like we're shooting it like 
on digital and we're going to make shit really dark on purpose. Yeah. You know, it was a lot like that. And then like, it was evil dead and evil dead Two and Ash versus evil dead. And, um, are all very gory, but it's very almost cartoonish gore. This was like, they were like, we're going to make it super gory and we're going to make it really realistically gory. So that kind of, I've almost lost a stomach for it at some points, but the ending was pretty good. So recovered for me. Um, and then I watched Halloween H2O. What? Tw- Halloween it's, H2O is the name of it? So, so it's called H, it's, it's called Halloween H20 colon 20 years later. Cause oh. it's, it came out on the 20 year anniversary of Halloween. Halloween H2O, H2O is a crazy name. People call it H2O because it's on the cover. It says H20. Gotcha. So people call it. Um, it's probably the best one in like the main continuity of it. Um, like of those sequels until they kind of rebooted it in 2018. It's not very good though. It's fine. People say it's, they say it's like a good, like kind of remake, but the ending, of, I'm pissed because the ending of it was not how Halloween movies typically end. And then there's a sequel to it. This doesn't make sense, but I watched the 1976 carry after that. Nice. And I really, I really like the remake too. I think it's a solid remake, but it's kind of the, it's just like the Evil Dead remake where they came out in the same year, actually, where it's everybody's kind of dressed in moodier clothes and we're going to shoot it digitally and it's going to be darker. But Brian De Palma's original was fucking awesome. Yeah, it's only to watch that. The only thing I'd say the remake has on the original is like the, I you know, the famous, you know, prom scene is probably done better because they have more access to better special effects. But, like, Brian De Palma's, like, the way he does it is really, really good and really, really creative. And it's a very impressive movie. I think... So, I don't... He hadn't done... De Palma's been making movies for a long time. And he has made a lot of them. When did Scarface come out? 83? Yeah, so... That's interesting. Carrie was kind of, like, his jumping off point as well as Stephen King's. It was Stephen King's actually actual first book. So that's interesting. Carrie was kind of his big break and then he got Scarface and it was off to the races for De Palma. That's cool. I recommend all of those movies except for H2O maybe. Nice. And good week for you good, for movies. Good, pretty good week. Pretty good week. I might rewatch some Raimi after this. Next week. All right. Disney. We're doing like Disney animation, and I think I'm going to keep it to the older 2D animation. We're not doing the CGI stuff because we already got that covered with Pixar. I like that. Yep. So we'll pro- we'll put out a poll, keep you on the edge of your seat, finding out what movies we choose because we have – a lot of movies to look through. They've made a lot of movies since like the thirties. Um, and a lot of them, even the really old ones are still pretty iconic. Like Pinocchio and Dumbo are old as shit. All right. Um, that, that I'll wrap it up there. You got anything else? Uh, no, sir. All right. Well, then, Jacob, I'll talk to you next week when we discuss some Disney movies. Until next time.